You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Thank you, Steve. And thank you guys so much for having me again this week. It is a real privilege to see you all again. Long time no see. So I was thinking about this stage. I, I am the last person that, to be on this stage. That feels, you know, I'll tell you what. Um, back, uh, this, this goes back to my high school days. And when, um, when New Hope Chapel met at AECS, and it probably goes be, before that. But I remember in high school, we would, um, we, for those of you that don't know the, best, the Bestgate campus over there near the mall, but they have, uh, we met up in the second floor, um, it's a library, and we had our storage on the first floor, so we would take the stage, and I think, Chuck, you were there at the time, and we, and we would take the stage part, and these pieces are heavy, we put it on a cart and push it all the way around, this, all the way around the, um, the school, all the way down, we did that every Sunday. The, it's amazing these things have lasted as long as they have, because then this was used at, um, Solomon's porch for the for a number of years and yeah they've gotten their they're got they've gotten their use so I'm excited to see the next phase of of stage life here um so I think I should sit down and we should just hear stories from Bryce and Erica what do you guys think <laughs> I I still remember the last time you guys came and um and the stories you told I remember like I remember thinking like wow this service is going really long but the stories are really that good, that we, you know, there's no better place that we should be. I love hearing those stories because it reminds me that, wow, there's a lot of things happening around the world that go way beyond myself and my experience, and the things that I experience seem so limited compared to what is happening in parts of the world. So it's exciting to see you guys and hear from you, and yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. I, I will share one brief story. Um, so uh, they're part of Eastern Mennonite Missions. Uh, there was, um, uh, I guess a, maybe a month ago, there was a, uh, a family from Germany who came, and they were part of a um, kind of support group, from the, and they were part of Eastern Mennonite Missions as well. And so they came and spoke at the church that we've been attending. And um, he is from Russia. She is from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and they, they are now in Berlin. And... In the community where they are, there's like 175 different cultures represented in this small pocket of Berlin, Germany. And he was talking about how, um, you know, one of the challenges is the, the Muslim community, and that's something that they're really focused on reaching out to. But also that the whole environment is so secular. Like there's just the concept of church is just a foreign concept. That they, they have just former atheists and just people that just really don't have a clue about God and really don't care um, that they're, they're ministering to. And, and so afterwards, he was, you know, taking questions and answers. And he was talking about, you know, especially the Sy- Syrian refugee um, um, situation because there's a big influx into Europe. And someone raised, so he's asking questions and someone raised their hand and, they, and he said this and it just blew my mind. He said, Does, you know, in the past, it seems like God would send... Um, God would send people to foreign countries, 
um, to, you know, for them to present the gospel? Are we seeing sort of a shift where God is bringing people from foreign countries and closed countries to places where they can hear the gospel? And I was like, whoa, you know, like that was, that was a, a, a huge concept. We think about like all of these debates about uh, refugees and about um, immigrants and things like that. But man, for us as the church, like to think about it as God bringing these people to hear the gospel, like that's just gold, you know? Um, talk about having missions in our own backyard. It really opens up um, quite the door. Well, awesome. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about when you guys were speak, uh, talking about the, the monk who invited them to visit with Christians, this morning I could not sleep. I had like the worst sinus infection. And so it was like three in the morning. I'm like, I cannot sleep. So I just watched Life of Pi. Have you guys seen that movie? And um, it's, a, it's an interesting movie. And this guy, he, he grows up and he's like, he's really into every single religion. He's like into Hinduism, he's into Christianity, he's into uh, being a Muslim. And, and you know, I, I think about that, like there's a lot of cultures out there that ch- kind of think of Christianity as just, oh, here's another God, you know, here's this, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. And I think what's so awesome about the stories that you guys told was that, um, God is the only God that we need, right? There is no need for another God. There's no use of having idols because God is the only God that we need. So awesome. So thank you guys for sharing this morning. Um, so uh, I just want to just put up the slide. Christianity is Jewish. And if you have a chance to go there and take a look at it and, um, and share some of the, the things that you read or that you hear. Um, and I'm so glad to be speaking on Yom Kippur today. Next week, I'll actually be speaking in Lancaster at, at a church called Connect. I'll be speaking on Sukkot. So um, I don't know if you, are you guys planning to have the tent this year? And Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. It's, yeah, that's true. That's true. You should build the sukkah inside the new stage. <laughs> Maybe make it like the drum case or something like that. Well, I thought what we would do um, is have a little quiz. Does that sound Okay. Um, so last week, I, I gave a brief overview of the Jewish feast, and I just want to see how much you guys remember. All right? All right, so here we go. Ready? So we can break up the feasts into two groups, the fall feasts and the spring feasts. Does anyone know how many Levitical feasts there are outside of the regular Sabbath? Seven. Good. All right, we're good. All right. And if we begin with the month of Tishri... How, on, on the first of Tishri, so in the fall, we get what feast? Rosh Hashanah, good. The feast of trumpets, that's good. And then 10 days from then is what? Yom Kippur, so probably what, Wednesday, I believe, this week. And then the following festival, I mean, I just kind of gave it all away, but is Sukkot, right, which is also called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, good. And we have our spring feasts. Anyone want to name all four? Passover. Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then right after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits. Think of it this way. Jesus died on Passover. He rose on the Feast of First Fruits. That's why Paul says he is the first fruit from among the dead. And Pentecost is, 
is the celebration 50 days after Passover. Good. All right. Pretty good. And last week I, I, I mentioned that um, when I look at these feasts, oh, and of those three festivals, or all those seven festivals, which three are pilgrimage festivals? I gave it away. They all j- <laughs> Tabernacles, Passover, and Pentecost. Last week I mentioned that these feasts really serve five functions. One of them is that they provide an opportunity for us to worship God. They tell us a little bit, of, they tell us a lot about who God is, his character, and um, invite us to a place of worship. Secondly, they all point to a historic event of some way, shape, or form, whether it's the Exodus, whether it's the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, whether it's um, Isaac or Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice. Thirdly, they are an opportunity to fellowship with God's people. Um, just as our holidays create a culture, so do the, these festivals create a culture for God's people. And fourthly, they all point to Jesus as the Messiah and remind us and invite us to find our redemption in him. And fifthly, they all point to the end times, to the restoration of God's kingdom. Today, we're going to look at Yom Kippur. And today, I want to talk about shadows of eternity. You may have heard of this guy, but about 400 years before Jesus, there lived a man. His name was Plato. And Plato, his, his biggest um, contribution to society was that he invented something we use called Plato. Okay, that's not exactly true. No, his biggest contribution was that Plato was a philosopher. And Plato wrote a famous work called The Republic. And in The Republic, there is a, um, there is a story that he tells, an allegory. It's called, yeah, we do need a new stage. It's called The Allegory of the Cave. And I, I'm going to, instead of me telling about the allegory of the cave, I thought we would watch a video. And Josh, I don't know if my sound is turned on my computer, but you may want to. Um, and we'll watch a video. And this is, um, this is a, a neat kind of illustration. It's actually inclamation or Play-Doh, if you will. But this is called the allegory of the cave. Imagine prisoners that have spent their entire lives chained deep inside a cave. They have been chained so that they cannot see behind themselves and they are forced to stare endlessly at the cave wall in front of them. Behind them a fire is burning and between the prisoners and the fire is a raised walkway. Now imagine that each day A menagerie of objects crosses the walkway. Animals and people carrying their wares to market. Their shapes create an intricate shadow play on the wall in front of the prisoners. This is the only world that the prisoners have ever known. shadows and the echoes of unseen objects. Now, imagine that a prisoner is released. After some time adjusting to the blinding light, the freed prisoner will begin 
to experience the world outside of the cave for the very first time. And it is like nothing he could have ever imagined. With his new perception of the world, the man will of course want to return to his friends to share his incredible discoveries. But the prisoners cannot recognize their old friend. He appears as all things do. His voice is a distorted echo, and his body is a grotesque shadow. They cannot understand his fantastic stories of the world outside of the cave. To them, it will never exist. This, of course, does not make the world outside of the cave any less says any less real is the last the last phrase that he uses but it's a fantastic story and in fact that idea of the shadow is something that's used throughout scripture in the new testament in colossians 2 verses 16 through 17 paul says therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival a new moon celebration or a sabbath day these are a shadow of the things that were to come the reality however is found in Christ. So what these these festivals that we talk about, they are a shadow. And they're wonderful. And celebrating them and looking at them and studying them is important. It's great. It gives me a better um, understanding, appreciation for Jesus. But without Jesus, those festivals are useless. And those festivals are only shadows. And in fact, if you think about it, there's a lot of things that we do in, in even our Christian world that are sort of like creating shadows without Jesus. There are a lot of people that go to church. They, they love church, but they don't know Jesus. And without Jesus, all it is is a shadow. So today we're going to take a look at both the shadow and the fullness of the reality found in Yom Kippur. And we begin by looking at the tabernacle because everything about Yom Kippur takes place with the tabernacle and later on the temple. The tabernacle, as you probably know, has different components. It has an outer court. It has an inner court. It has a building, the tabernacle itself, where it has um, the holy place. And then, and then the innermost room is the most holy place. In each area, there was something that transpired, whether it was sacrifices, whether it was the seven-branch menorah, whether it was the table of showbread. But in the innermost place, the most sacred room was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a special and most sacred box for Israel. It was their most sacred artifact. It, had, it was very ornate, with, um, overlaid with gold, and on top of it ha- had a cover, and inside of it was um, Mo- uh, Aaron's staff. It had, um, it had uh, manna from the, the wilderness. It had the Ten Commandments all inside of it, and on the top was this cover with cherubim, and that was called the mercy seat. In Leviticus, we read about um, uh, Aaron's two sons. Aaron was the high priest. And Aaron's two sons who God killed because they were just very irreverent towards the things of God. So in, verse, in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron, 
that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover, on the ark, and on, on top of the, in front of the mercy seat, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So right there, God is limiting man's access to him, but he is going to give provision for when they can come into the most holy place in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what we read after that. And, he, and God gives Aaron and Moses and Israel very specific instructions, sort of a menu, if you will, on what is supposed to happen on Yom Kippur. So I'll go through these by bullet points, and if you have your Bibles, you can follow along in, in Leviticus chapter 16. It says, On the tenth day of the seventh month, celebrate the sacred Sabbath of atonement. Bathe. That seems important. Put on linen underwear, tunic, a sash, and a turban. Find a bull and two goats from the Israel community. Present the two goats at the entrance of the tabernacle. Sacrifice the bull as a sin offering to cover him, and he's referring to the priest, and his family. And then the priest is to make sure that no one is in the tent of meeting. It continues. All of these instructions continue because now Aaron is going to transition from making these sacrifices outside of the tabernacle to bringing the blood inside the tabernacle. And so he is supposed to pass through the holy place and, in front, and, be, and between the holy place and the most holy place was a very thick curtain. It was to keep people out and keep God in. And so, in, and so Aaron is now supposed to pass through the curtain and it says that he is to do this. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar, two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense, and some of the bull's blood behind the curtain. Light the incense on the fire before the Lord, causing smoke to conceal the atonement cover. Sprinkle the bull's blood with his finger seven times on top of the atonement cover. So now he's getting very specific. And I don't think there was Ikea instructions, you know, what they look like you have the little guy and he's just like, anyways, leave the most holy place. Go back to the altar and slaughter one of the goats as a sacrifice for Israel. So when he goes out of the tabernacle, he slaughters one of the goats. So he slaughtered the bull, now he slaughters one of the goats. Take the goat's blood back into the most holy place and sprinkle it on the atonement cover just like he did with the bull's blood. Then he's to go back out to the altar Mix some of the blood from the bull and goat and sprinkle it on the horns, so the, the altar had horns on the, on the corners of it, of the altar seven times with his finger. Lay his hands on the head of the live goat. Remember, there were two goats, and one of them he kills, he sacrifices, and the other one he lays his hands on that and confess the sins of all of Israel. Give the live goat to someone who will take it out into the wilderness and let it go free. So that is the scapegoat. Afterward, that person must bathe. The instructions continue. It says, return to the tabernacle. Take off all the sacred linens and bathe. Go back out to the altar and burn the sacrifices. Give the carcasses to someone who is to remove them from the camp. Afterward, they must bathe. The appointed high priest it must do this the same way at the same time every year. So this is no joke. This is a pretty significant thing. And considering that the high priests would oftentimes 
um, would change. They had different leaders in, in charge at different times. I, he might have, I, I wonder if he rehearsed it a, a number of times, you know, not going in, not actually making the sacrifices. But, or maybe he had like the cue card, like what do I do next? You know, and he had to follow everything to the T. Those instructions may seem kind of weird, huh? I mean, sprinkle the blood seven times, you know, mix the bull's blood and the goat's blood. I mean, it all seems, and it all seems a little graphic, a little bloody, right? Why in the world would God prescribe this particular thing and call it the Day of Atonement? Well, I can think of a number of reasons why I think God did this. And the first reason why I think that God prescribes Yom Kippur in this way is to teach us of the otherness, the holiness of God. Isaiah 55 says, uh, the Lord says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you were going to have the most important celebration, if you were to create a culture and, and have the most important celebration, there would probably be things that you would include. And they'd be, probably be things based on your personality. Maybe some pinatas, maybe some music, you know, maybe things like that. God's personality is seen here. And even though for us we think, why I, could, I would never do something like that, I think that's the point. God is totally different than us. In fact, whenever someone says, um, you know, when you talk having a theological discussion, someone says, I can't imagine a God who, I'm always like, well, there's the key. If you can imagine a God who could do something, I think you're missing the point that God is utterly different than us. God is trying to show that he is very different than us. At the very core, he is holy, we are sinful, there is that separation. The second thing that, he's, that I believe he's teaching us is the seriousness of sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And God is showing that there is a seriousness to sin. It's not something we can just pass off. It's not something we can just say, oh, my bad, sorry, you know that there is something very serious about what happens. And because of that seriousness, there is a necessity of sacrifice. Hebrews 9 tells us, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or there is no remission of sins. So it's not just enough for in, in God's world. It may seem like it's okay in your world, in our world, to say, look, I'm sorry, In God's world, something has to die when somebody sins. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, we're told this. The law, again, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have have, uh, stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. You know, it's so interesting. We think, okay, if they sacrifice, the sin is gone, right? But 
what, what are we reminded? What does David say? David says, sacrifices you do not desire. You desire a broken and contrite heart. The, the, the sins were taken away because of their obedience to a prescribed method that God uh, gave. Because ultimately, he was showing something bigger, a bigger reality than just the sacrifice of bulls and goats. He was teaching them of their need for a savior. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, and then continues, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is painting a, a reality for them. He is showing the shadows on the wall so that when the reality happens, they would immediately recognize it. When Jesus was on the cross, you could automatically think of the words of Isaiah 53, which were written hundreds of years before Jesus. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So there at the moment of the cross is the reality that makes sense of all of the sacrifices. But there's something else. Not just the moment at the cross, but the moment at the tomb. In the book of John, we read in John chapter 20 that now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she bent over to look into the tomb, she saw two uh, two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. What does that look like to you? That looks like the Ark of the Covenant, doesn't it? That at that moment where Jesus' body had been laid, that is our mercy seat. His blood spilt for our behalf. He, he died in our place, and he rose from the dead. He satisfied judgment and set us free. And there are the two angels. You know, it's so interesting because in Yom Kippur, we just see so much tied to Passover, to the resurrection. We just see the, this beauty uh, of the, the painting, the shadows kind of coming to life. Um, we see, you know, the, the main parts of, uh, of Yom Kippur deal with the tabernacle. They deal with the, the lamb. They deal with the Ark of the Covenant. And there in Jesus, we see those things. God is painting a picture. He is painting a picture for us. And, um, and just like an artist paints a picture, he wants us to experience the reality in some way, to taste something that is beyond our comprehension, that, that extends beyond the walls of the canvas. And what God is showing to us is more, more than just Jesus on the cross. He's showing us the reality of heaven, the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, 
Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. What's so interesting to me is as I read Revelation, particularly Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, and there are some other uh, parts of this where it talks about the lamb that had been slain. And John writes, Then I saw a lamb looking as it had been slain, uh, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And I think to myself, well, what does Jesus look like, right? What does he look like in, in the context of eternity where there is no beginning and no end and, and we don't experience time like we do here? And it's so interesting that this is the picture, a lamb as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. And then I think, wait, maybe God is painting not just the picture of Jesus and giving that to them as the sacrificial lamb, but also he's painting a picture of heaven. And how many times did the priest have to sprinkle the blood on the altar? Seven times, right? How many times did he have to sprinkle it on the mercy seat? Seven times. There's this understanding, this reality of exactly who is God, and it's complicated, and it's broad, and it's, and it's precise yet, and big. And they're participating in it in some way. So not only does God teach us about his holiness, the seriousness of sin, the need for a sacrifice, the need for a savior, the realities of the kingdom of heaven, but he's also teaching us something else. I mentioned that Yom Kippur centers around the tabernacle or the temple. And what happened on the night that Jesus was crucified The moment he died, there was an earthquake and the temple curtain, that really thick curtain, probably six inches thick, tore from top to bottom. And that is so significant. That is so significant. Because in the past, God made it so that it was only one person, one person who could enter into the most holy place and make a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. But in what God is doing now, is that he's inviting us to participate in the kingdom of God. In Hebrews 10, it says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And he's not talking to just the priests. He's not just talking to the clergy. He's talking to everyone, since we have confidence. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance uh, that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful." We are participating in the kingdom of God. One of the things that I I think that we tend to think about in regards to eternal life is that we tend to think that eternal life begins the moment we die. But Jesus defined it differently. In John 17, he says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You may, re- you may recall the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite books, and one of my favorite stories. And in that story, um, 
Peter and Lucy and Edmund and I forgot one. Susan, thank you. Go into, go into the wardrobe and they go into another world, right? They go into this world and they participate in this world and they come back and then and towards the end they go to open the wardrobe again and it's closed. Well, I think that that concept of a wardrobe is sort of like the concept of the most holy place. When the high priest entered into the most holy place, he was entering into a very another realm. But think about the think about what that means. If Jesus says, Hey, eternal life is you believing. You and I are entering, when we believe in God, when we trust in God, when we let God live in us because we are the temple of God, we are participating in another realm in a way that Moses and Aaron and David and Solomon could never even imagine. So when Jesus says in Matthew 6.10, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is inviting us to be participants in his kingdom. That's what I think Yom Kippur is all about. Yom Kippur is a reminder for me that, yes, this this is a great celebration. It's significant. It's a shadow of the reality that we find in Jesus. It's also a hope of the reality of heaven, that one day I'm going to understand it even more fully. And also a reminder that God invites each and every one of us to participate in his kingdom. Why don't we pray? God, thank you so much for your love and your provision for us. Thank you for the festival of Yom Kippur and what it teaches us. And also, God, thank you for not leaving us to just make annual sacrifices with bulls and goats, but of showing us a much better way, a greater way, a greater sacrifice through your son. Lord, we anxiously look forward to eternity with you, but we recognize that eternal life is now. It's believing in you. It's living in you. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen your church to be that, to be the salt and light, to never forget um, what realm they belong in, what kingdom they belong to. God, help us to be, um, help us to be your high priests in your kingdom, carrying out your will and your goodness and inviting your will into our life so that it may be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, God, for New Hope Chapel and this church and, and the, the people that make this up. And Lord, we just ask your blessing to continue to flow here and your goodness to be exhibited and revealed to all of the community. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd.
Be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.